0: I'd like to welcome everyone here today and those joining us on YouTube. We're glad that we could all be together to worship the Lord. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege that it is to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to bless your holy name. What a privilege and an honor we have to bless the king of all kings. Father, we thank you for your amazing and awesome love and mercy that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you for the riches and glory that we have in Christ that you give us on a daily basis. Father, we're privileged children of God, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the gift of your word, and as we look into your word We want to continue our worship. We want to continue our adoration of you. So bring us to that place where we would be captivated, that we would be wrapped up in your glory, and we'd be able to receive from you all that you have in store for us this morning. We pray that you would edify the body in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever had a moment where you just felt so touched in a deep and personal way by something that God did for you? You know, one of those moments for me was when I came home after graduating college. I was reading the local newspaper to catch up on the news, and I saw a clip of an event that was going to take place that weekend. It was an event called the Tri-States March for Jesus. Now, I was saved during my college years, so I wasn't going to church locally at the time. But, you know, I thought, I, I won't know anybody there, but I know Jesus, and so I'm going. Well, I remember the assembly point for this was at the Port Jervis Middle School. There were balloons, banners with all the different names of Jesus. There were vans with loudspeakers to synchronize the music and the worship. There was about 800 believers from all across the tri-state area. And we walked down East Main Street, worshiping the Lord. We went down Pike Street, and then we, we went across the bridge onto Pennsylvania Avenue, then down 7th Street, and we ended up in Airport Park, where the local pastors led us in a prayer rally. It was an incredible experience. It was like standing in an ocean of worship to the King of Kings as we walked through the streets of our community. For me, it was a little taste of heaven. But, you know, through a series of events, I actually ended up on the organizational team. The founder and local organizer of it was eventually called to be the New York State coordinator to launch and support Marches for Jesus all across the state. You see, this was an international event that took place in over 100 countries and 2,300 cities in our country, all on the same day, all for Jesus. Now, New York State needed a coordinator So our local march organizer stepped into that position, and I was called to be the new local March for Jesus organizer. So at that prayer rally, the founder of the local march called me up to have the area pastors pray over me, and when I did, they presented me with this. It's a double-edged sword, symbolic for scripture, and it's got two handles on it to symbolize a baton. It was a baton for me to take hold of and continue the race of calling the church to go beyond its church walls to bring the joy of knowing Jesus into the streets of the community. It was a moment that I felt so overwhelmed and deeply touched by the grace and the gift that the Lord was giving me. Now imagine the honor it was for me to have that ministry passed down from the founder. But you know, every believer has the same opportunity to take hold of a baton and run a race that is far more important and glorious than any one ministry. Paul describes it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, therefore we also at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, you know, looking at this verse, we see the first word in it is therefore. So we know that everything that's being said in this verse is based on what was just said in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the, quote, hall of faith, because it lists the great saints of the past And the awesome things that the Lord did through them because of their faith. Here we see David's amazing story. We see Joshua's story about the fall of Jericho's walls. Samson and how he was made supernaturally strong. Abraham, how he had the faith to offer up Isaac. And Moses, the miracles when he led God's people out of Egypt. We also have Rahab, who by faith didn't perish when everyone else did when Jericho's walls fell. There are many more listed, but it's an account of the great victories of God's people, not because they fought well, but because they believed well. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now this section of our verse means that we as believers are being invited to join an awesome legacy by taking the baton of faith and running the race like all those who have gone before us. What does your story look like? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You see, just as each of these who have gone on before us, they have a story of faith. What does our story look like? What does your story look like? How is God leading you to run the race of faith? Are we as we look at those who have gone before us? Paul wants to inspire us to run this race and run to win. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9:24. He says, "quote Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, as we look at Hebrews chapter 11 and move into chapter 12, we are called and inspired to take the baton of faith and run like they did. Now, at this point in our verse, we're given two commands. Lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Two commands. Let's take a look at the first one. Lay aside every weight and sin. The weight that Paul talks about is distinguished from sin. So a way is not exactly rebellion. Now, if we think about it as a physical race, it would be anything that could slow you down. For example, you might be permitted to bring a backpack or a fanny pack to run your race at the high school track, but it wouldn't be the smartest thing to do to run your race while carrying all that extra baggage. It's going to slow you down, and it might even trip you up. So practically, what is Paul referring to when he refers to wait? Well, he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify so the weight again is not exactly sin or rebellion. It may be lawful, but the weight are things that won't necessarily help us grow in our faith. Now, when it comes to the law, again, it's not uh, may not be forbidden, but to embrace them might slow you down in your race. Pastor John Piper gives one example. Of a weight when he says, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but it's the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X rated video, but it's the prime time dribble of triviality that we drink in every night. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and even incurable, almost incurable. So a weight is really anything that can appear to be good, but it's keeping us from God's best. You know, I say to the youth group often, That when Satan comes to try to get you off track with God, he's not going to use things that are blatantly bad. They were all raised in Christian homes. And he knows that they're too smart for that. But he's going to use good things to keep them from the best until he can really do the damage that he's seeking to do. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, quote, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So we need discernment to test and see if things that we participate in, things that we listen to or watch, are they beneficial? Are they helpful? Will this edify me and help me run my race or is this a weight? Paul says, If it doesn't help you in your race, then lay it aside. Get rid of it. Now, he also says to lay aside the sin. Now, it helps us here to know what the root cause of sin is. Jerry Bridges, in his book, quote, Respectable Sins, says that the sin of ungodliness is more apt to be the root of all our other sins. Ungodliness is an attitude towards God, and Jerry Bridges defines it as, quote, living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. Have you ever gone through a day and at the end of it just shake your head and wonder, where was God in that? God was was the furthest thing from my mind. You know, this is sin, and it's a sin in which all the others follow. Pastor John Piper expands on this thought with a practical list. He defines sin as, quote, the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. So to lay aside this sin would be to make the glory of God my reason, my focus. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now what does this mean practically? Well, it means when I eat or drink, when I work, when I fellowship, when I sing, and I do all of my day-in and day-out activities, I do these with two things in mind. Number one, I do it in the way that pleases God. And number two, we do it in a way that makes a big deal about Jesus in the world. You see, the glory of God is God's best. And when we pursue that, we lay aside every weight and sin that entangles us. Now, the second command is to run with endurance. Here we have to ask why am I running? You know, what's the goal? What's the point? If I'm going to exert this much energy and focus, I need to know the why, I need to know the goal. Well, the Lord tells us in Scripture what his goal is for us. In Romans 8, 29, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, the goal in our race is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. To think like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to act like Jesus. The goal is to have the nature and the character of God expressed in us. This is our goal, and that's the finish line. So the race we run is a race to become more and more like Christ every day. Our race is our sanctification. This is a lifelong process where we become more and more like Christ through faith expressed in our daily living. Now, as we take the baton of faith, we're given these two commands. Lay aside every weight in sin and run with endurance. Now, one of the many good things about our verse today is that they tell us how to obey the, these commands. It simply says, looking unto Jesus. That's How? You see, if I gave you a command like drive carefully having both hands on the wheel, I gave you a command and I just explained to you how to do it. You drive carefully by having two hands on the wheel. The verb ending in ing is what tells us how. So we are commanded to lay aside every weight and sin and run looking unto Jesus. The question is, how does looking unto Jesus enable us to lay aside every weight and sin? How does it empower us? Well, to unpack that question, I want to start with the end of the race. You see, when I arrive in heaven, I am going to be perfect, flawless, perfectly displaying Christ's glory. Now, for the longest time, I've had the question, what does God have to do to me to make me that way? As I thought about it, one minute, I'm, I'm on my deathbed, and I am corrupted, deeply corrupted. I'm weak. I'm sinful. And in an instant, I'm made completely perfect and holy. What does God have to do to make that happen? Well, the answer is, He shows us Himself. That's what He does. He shows us Himself. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, quote, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. See, what makes us perfect is seeing Jesus as he is. Seeing Jesus glorified makes us flawless in our behavior. Pastor Bo Hughes says, what transforms us into Christ's image is a vision of beauty. It's Christ's beauty. He says, quote, moral instruction without a captivating vision of beauty, will only produce whitewashed tombs and rebels. It's beauty that transforms. You know, example of this is when, when I used to teach Josh how to play the drums, and while I teach Gabe now, uh, drumming, I don't start with how to hold sticks. I don't start with reading the notes. I don't start with how to hit a drum what I do is I start with showing them incredible drummers of the past and just amazing drum solos. You see, this transforms them inside out. It's beholding that beauty that brings a joy and a pleasure, and experiencing that pleasure is what deepens our desire for it. When we experience beauty, it deepens our desire for it. So without a vision of beauty, we could be whitewashed tombs because while we might be able to reform our behavior on the outside, we're still dead on the inside. For example, let's just say I was struggling with a sin of stealing candy bars from Dollar General. Now, one day, I'm staring at a candy bar and I'm deeply struggling with this. I'm really, really having a hard time. I know it's wrong, but my flesh is strong. And you could label any sin with this, but my flesh really wants it. I have to have it. But in that moment, someone comes to me and offers me a free trip to Hawaii if I walk away from that candy bar. What's going to happen to me? I'm going to lose all desire for that candy bar and totally forget about the candy bar because now I have something that's going to give me greater pleasure, greater joy. I'll not only walk away from the candy bar, but I'll lose all interest in it. I had a change of heart. Now, as i going back to that struggle, I'm really struggling there. This time... I might be able to muster enough strength to walk away from it. But as as I'm in the parking lot, I still want that candy bar. As I'm in the car, I still want that candy bar. As I'm driving away, I still want that candy bar. You see, I'm still stuck. I may have reformed my behavior. I'm still stuck with an idol. I still want that. I'm not free. See, but the vision of beauty, the trip to Hawaii that gives me more joy, more pleasure, will instantly change my heart. In fact, if that candy bar stands in the way of me and a trip to Hawaii, I'm going to make war on that candy bar. See, heaven will give us such a vision of Christ that it will be so overwhelmingly captivating that sin will be far removed from our hearts and our minds. You know, years ago, when I was working at the, at the camp, one of the maintenance men used to say something to me that I'll never forget. You know, every day I would ask him, how are you? How are you doing today? And his response was always, if I was any better, I couldn't stand it. You know, have, have you ever had those moments where you just really, like for real, had so much pleasure that you just couldn't stand it. Heaven will be like that constantly. In fact, that's why God said to Moses, No one can see my glory and live. You know, that's what God said when Mo- Moses asked to see the glory of God. God is saying, It's too good. In your state, you will not be able to stand it. It's far too overwhelming for you now. It's too powerful. It's too awesome. It's too wonderful. There's too much joy for you to even contain. But when this fallen body is shed and we see him as he is, it will fully transform us. So the question is how does that help us now? Well, we obey these two commands by looking unto Jesus. As much as we can through creation, through his word, through the church, we can see his beauty, his splendor, his perfection, and his wisdom. I always use Niagara Falls as a great example. When you stand and look at something like that, you're not thinking about the pressures at work. You're not thinking about stealing candy bars from Dollar General. You're not thinking about how this this person or that person offended you. In fact, you're not even thinking about yourself at all. You're captivated and in awe over the power, the grandeur, the size, and the beauty of this thing. Then you realize that this is but a shadow compared to what God can do. You can look and see Jesus who is exponentially other than that. And yet this same God who created Niagara Falls called a stone to produce enough drinking water for over 2 million people and all of their animals while the Israelites were in the desert. Again, we see the beauty and grandeur by looking at the night sky and by re- realizing how big and how glorious God is, to be captivated by that. Scientists report that the known universe is 46.8 billion light years. Now to kind of break that down into something we can kind of somewhat comprehend. If we decided to walk around the equator of the earth, 25 million 477,707 times. If we did that walk, then we did that walk six more times, you get one light year. There's 46.8 billion more of those. And that's what scientists know exists. And there's a whole lot more beyond that. And yet, in 1 Kings 8.27, we read, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. God can't fit in this universe. That's how big he is. You know, we could look at all the animals and see how they've been given all that they need to exist in their environment from their fur color to where their eyes are positioned, to the shape of their feet, each feature carefully chosen and created for all these creatures. You know, we can read his word and see the wealth of his wisdom and sovereignty that he had in Esther's life through Joseph's circumstances and how he left the Pharisees absolutely speechless, such learned and educated people we're left to a point of having nothing to say. And we can see the love of God through the cross of Christ and all that he endured for us and the love and care that we have for each other. We can marvel at the power of God in reading scriptural accounts of Jesus raising people from the dead, parting the Red Sea, multiplying bread and fish to feed thousands, And, you know, we can even see him through our own circumstances. You know, recently I've been blown away by God's power through our journey in foster care. When we entered foster care, it was only to be, quote-unquote, respite. Vanessa and I were very clear at at the trainings that we were only interested in taking someone for the weekend or for a couple days. We wanted to give the, the real foster parents a break. You know, we wanted to give the real warriors uh, some some time off. So we went through the training, the certification process, and then we got the call and we agreed to take Russell for three weeks. Then the weeks turned into a couple months, and then COVID came and pushed all the dates forward. And so we quickly went from being a respite to a pre-adoptive home. Now, when the adoption looked like it was going to be a reality, we quickly realized that we needed an addition. We were totally, totally out of space in our house, and God provided all of the funds for the entire addition. It was a gift. You know, there's no debt that we have from it. You know, God's wisdom and power has been absolutely astounding through the whole process. You know, we could also be overwhelmed by the mercy of God just by looking at our own lives and see how much he forgives us and how much he puts up with. You know, in our own lives. It's so rich, it's so glorious. You see, looking unto Jesus involves a feeding and drinking from all that Jesus is and all that he is for us. John 6:35 says I am the bread of life, he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. When we feed and drink from all that he is, the presence and the promises of God are so satisfying that it knocks out our desire to sin. This pleasure and joy is what enables our obedience. Now we read in our text that looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We see here that what motivated Jesus to become sin for us, to take the wrath that we deserved, And to be crucified was the future joy and pleasure that he would receive. For Jesus, it was his glorification and his exaltation, since he was seated at the right hand of Almighty God. It was also the rescue and redemption of his bride. See, we are part of that joy that was set before him. His pleasure and joy in his father And us was his motivation to endure all that. And it's pleasure and joy that's the key to becoming more like Jesus for us. David actually shows us this through his tragic mistakes. We see in the Old Testament that God called David a man after God's own heart. That's a special title. A man after God's own heart. David was passionate. David was faithful. But then we see eventually he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he murders her husband. The question is, how can a man after God's own heart fall so hard so fast? How does this happen? Well, we see in David's psalm of repentance where the problem is. When he prays in Psalm 51, verse 12, he prays, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. You see, what happened to David is that he lost the joy of his salvation. He didn't lose his salvation, but he lost the pleasure in it. And that was the beginning of his fall. So the key for us in our race is the same as Christ's. It's the joy that we have in our unification with Christ, our exaltation, and our glorification. This is the joy that's set before us. By looking unto Jesus, we can have the joy and pleasure of having the riches and the glory that Jesus wants to pour into us. Each day we can become more and more like our creator and our redeemer, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, quote, But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, as we look unto Jesus, we'll have a greater manifestation of the greatest beauty in the universe. Next is our glorification. Romans 8.19 says, quote, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, Pastor Tom has taught that this quote, revealing, the, the word for it is called apocalypsis. That's the word for it, for revealing Now, to kind of describe what this is and what this involves, imagine for a second that you're at an art show and the greatest and most talented artist of all time is there and they brought their greatest work to be revealed. It's covered and it's just sitting there waiting to be revealed. And you can imagine the anticipation and the excitement of the greatest work of art from the greatest artist that ever lived. Everyone's on the edge of their seat to see it. Well, that master artist is the Lord, and that great work of art is us. It's us individually and corporately, perfectly displaying the beauty and glory of Christ. As the scripture says, creation is earnestly expecting, eagerly waiting for this moment. And we can participate in preparing for that moment now. And that's what we're being called to as we take this baton. We also get a crown. In 1 Corinthians 9.25 it says, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. You see, we get an imperishable crown for running this race. Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, says that all of our heavenly rewards are geared to a rich expression and experience of worship in heaven. The more we have in heavenly rewards, the richer our worship and our experience will be for eternity. So it's going to be an awesome moment before the entire heavenly host and universe to take this crown of incorruption and to lay it at his feet, knowing that he's the one responsible for our glorification. These are just a couple things to mention the joy that's set before us. But scripture is so full of so much more. The joy and pleasure that come from our creator far surpass any promising joy that we could ever have from anything in creation. This is our motivating strength to turn from the things of earth and look upon Jesus to drink and feed on all that he is. It's that looking that transforms us into his image, which is the ultimate goal. And we've been given an extraordinary honor of taking the baton of faith from the author and founder of it. Let's take hold. Trust And believe, like the ones who have gone before us, to live and die to display the awesome image of our creator and redeemer. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.